Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can follow me on Twitter at Exporter Tax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to have back Callum Dewar. Callum is an international tax partner based in our Washington National Tax Services practice and leads our integrated global structuring practice in the U.S. Before joining the U.S. firm, Callum was a partner and practiced in our U.K. firm. Callum, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Back again. Back back again. And I know one of your favorite topics is is state aid. And and I, I say that jokingly, but I, I obviously a very, very important issue. But before we dive into to state aid, um wanted to get your perspective on on professional sports and, and what we're seeing in the, the coronavirus kind of professional sports experience. So baseball has has started again. There have already been some rough patches with respect to the number of players and, and some teams being significantly impacted. But I, I watched a little bit of the English Premier League uh, the, this, this past weekend, Calm. You know I'm not a big soccer fan or European football fan. Um, I, I still have this fundamental issue that you guys just can't figure out how to stop the clock when, when the ball goes, goes out of play or, or somebody gets hurt in this whole mysterious time after. But w- what are you thinking about the, from the, the new, the crowd noise being pumped in? We actually see that with baseball and with soccer, but do you have any opinions or, or thoughts on, on what this fanless experience is like for, as a, as a European football fan? And, and what you're experiencing? Well, I, I mean, I think, I mean, the Premier season has just finished. Um, so Liverpool managed to win the title for the first time in 30 years. And I think if you ask a Liverpool fan, they'll take any title. Um, so, you know, obviously they were happy. I mean, I think it's a surreal experience uh, to watch on TV without real fans there. Um, but I'm not sure how soon we're going to get real fans at any sporting event in the UK or the US. Um, I mean, I, I, I chose to support rubbish teams at all sports. So the fan base for the Jets, you probably won't notice the difference with a Jets game between no fans and the uh, normal crowd we get at Jets game after about game four of the season. So I, I don't think it's going to make a lot of difference from that perspective. Um, but, you know, it's an odd situation. I mean, I think, you know, the, the players had to get the season finished. They've now got a few months or a couple of months before the season kicks off again. And you know, maybe the whole world will be a different place by then. Maybe we'll have a vaccine and everyone will be able to go and watch the games. I, I somehow doubt it. Yeah, I, I somehow doubt it too. I, I am just excited to be able to to have some sport back to to, to be able to watch, watch and create a, a little bit of a distraction from everything that we're dealing mm-hmm. with. So let's turn to this, the Apple state aid case. So this is something that tax practitioners, policy people, I mean, I've gotten questions about this case from my mom, who is an educator by, by trade and has very little interest in, in international tax. So when I get questions from my mom, I know this is something on, on people's radar. Mm-hmm. Maybe before we dive into the the facts of the Apple case and and exactly what was decided by the the general court, 
I think one of the things, frankly, that I've struggled with, and, and I know others, is like, what is the process, the procedure that actually takes place with the European Commission um, with respect to they filed the initial claim, and then I, I believe it was a, it was appealed to the general court. There could be another appeals to the the court of justice. But maybe again, before we dive in, can you give us a little bit of context on on the procedure of what actually has has happened to date with with the Apple state aid case? State aid is is a provision of European law. Um, um, you know, it's not a tax provision per se, um, but the Commission have been trying to apply it to taxing scenarios. Uh, and the basic provision says it's illegal for a member state to give a selective advantage to a company, an individual, that gives rise to a breach of competition rules. And you know, historically, that's been around for a long time. Historically, it's been widely used by the Commission to police things like grants and incentives for government-owned industries or certain types of industries that you know governments are wishing to encourage to make sure that member states aren't giving aid selectively in favour of one or the other. Um, now, you know, some years ago, a few years ago now, the Commission concluded that some jurisdictions may be granting fiscal state aid through taxing measures. And so they started, you know, investigating various regimes and or uh, taxpayer agreements to determine whether the government in question had granted illegal state aid. So whilst it's called the Apple decision, Apple case, Apple is not actually the defendant in the case. The, the defendant in the first instance is the Irish government. So the commission effectively takes a case against a member state government and says, you have illegally granted state aid to somebody either through a regime or through a transfer pricing agreement or through some other measure. And if found that the government has done that, the obligation is on the government to reclaim the aid so given to the relevant uh, recipient. And obviously in the Apple case, the recipient was Apple. And so the commission launched its investigation. That process starts off with an initial inquiry, um, which then leads the commission to one of two decisions. There is a case to be answered or there isn't a case to be answered. If they go the, the case to be answered route, they then undertake a full investigation. Um, and at the conclusion of that full investigation, the commission gives its decision. So in the Apple case, the commission undertook its investigation, concluded in their view that the Irish government had given selective aid to Apple and therefore imposed on the Irish government the obligation to recover that aid uh, the number being an eye-watering $13 billion uh, plus interest. So the Irish government is obligated to claim that money on the, on the commission's decision, even if the government decides to appeal the commission's decision through to the European court system, the lower court being the general court. So as a matter of fact, Apple 
were obliged to hand over money to the Irish government. That took some time to actually make happen in order that Apple could get comfortable that the Irish gov government was going to put that money in escrow in a way that Apple was comfortable with. But the money was handed over, held in escrow. And then the Irish government and Apple appealed against the European Commission decision to the General Court. Um, it didn't require both of them to appeal, but they both did appeal. They're both stakeholders in the decision. So they both appealed. At some points in Ireland, there was a fair amount of public pushback on whether the Irish government should appeal. Um, you know, obviously, 14 of $13 billion plus interest is a lot of money. And a number of members of the public and politicians thought that maybe the Irish government should just take the money. But the Irish government concluded that it wasn't in their best interest to take the, the, the money and not appeal the decision, that it would undermine the stability that Ireland's viewed with throughout the tax world as having a stable tax system. And so they appealed. And that's where we got to the general court decision. The next process or the next piece, and, and we'll dive into this, then after the general court decision, the next venue would be an appeal to the, the court of justice, which is the highest court for the, yeah. the I guess, for the EU. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Correct. Yes. Um, and so, you know, as we stand at the moment, the general court handed down its decision. We'll get into the, some of the detail of that in a second. Uh, but yes, from here, either that's a final decision or the Commission can appeal that decision through to the European Court of Justice, which is the Supreme Court of the EU. Okay, and so, so I, that, that's very helpful, Callum, and it's a great reminder that Apple is actually not uh, uh, part of this this actual of of the decision it's of course indirectly they are but it's really between Ireland and 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 the commission so let's let's dive into into the facts here because i mean this is it's a uh, an an older structure that that i think apple has 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 sensed you know publicly had changed but can you talk about the the facts um at uh at, at issue here and and some of the the technical yeah. aspects that, that 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 were were subject to the opinion yeah sure so i mean at, at a high level i mean at the apple decision was focused on two entities uh those entities were Irish incorporated, but not Irish resident entities. So under Irish law, they were formed under the law of Ireland, but because they weren't managed and controlled in Ireland, under the relevant Irish domestic law, they were not treated as resident tax companies. Instead, they were treated as non-resident. However, factually, both of those entities were carrying on some business in Ireland through each of their Irish branches. And that wasn't at dispute. In other words, everyone agreed that these non-resident companies had a taxable presence through a branch in Ireland. However, where the Commission and the Irish government and Apple uh, disagreed was the amount of profit that should be allocated to those Irish branches. So. Um, 
what Apple had done along uh, with a you know agreement, a pricing agreement with the Irish authorities, was calculate what they thought was an appropriate level of remuneration for the Irish branches, having regard to the activities, functions, and risks that were located in Ireland. Um, and meanwhile, all the rest of the profit that was earned by these Irish non-resident companies uh, was not within the charge to Irish tax because it was not attributable to the Irish branches. So that, that was the basic construct. Uh, the commission argued that much more of the profit, in fact, nearly all of the profit of these Irish non-resident companies should be taxed in Ireland. And their rationale for that was that the transfer pricing rules should be looked at holistically in totality and say, well, if there was little or no activity in the head office, which as a matter of fact, there was relatively little activity, there were board meetings, etc., but relatively little activity outside of Ireland, then it must be the case that all of the profit of these legal entities was allocable to the branch and the Irish authorities had misapplied the transfer pricing rules by only taxing a relatively small percentage and they should have taxed near enough the totality. And that's the number that drives the, the $13 billion of underpayment of taxes. So that's the, the basic construct of the facts. Um, I don't know if you need any more on that, Doug, or whether we uh, move to the decision. <laughs> Well, maybe a couple of other things with, with respect to the facts, Calm. I think one thing I would note that Ireland, right, has since changed their rules such that this Irish, an Irish non-resident, so an entity that is an organized in Ireland, but tax resident and in, in, in a tax haven or lower jurisdiction, I think it's at the end of this year, Ireland will, will now say that that Irish incorporated entity is no longer, sub, is no will now be subject to tax in Ireland. In, Ireland. in other words, it's no longer not subject to, to tax in Ireland. So the, the the fundamentals of this structure have, have changed and, and Ireland has 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 changed has changed its rules. Um, I think the other important thing to to mention that our listeners should be mindful of and, and we'll dive into this as we get into the decision is that what really I think created this the the opportunity for this structure is our US cost sharing rules such that there was this legal entity that had a branch in Ireland, but the legal entity had entered into a cost share with, with the U.S. And the way the U.S. cost share rules work, and I'm grossly oversimplifying, is that they generally allow a CFC, a controlled foreign corporation of a U.S. group, to effectively share the cost with the U.S. to be able to develop oftentimes the non-US rights for intellectual property. And the the fundamentals of the US cost share rules generally treat the cost share participant as 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 having a a PE in the US or at least being able to to I shouldn't say PE as a defined term, but effectively the CFC is deemed to participate in those activities in the US through through simply sharing those costs. So from a US tax perspective, you have this Irish incorporated uh, Bermuda tax resident. 
entity, but the from a U.S. perspective, the foreign IP rights or IP rights that actually sit in that legal entity are cost shared with the U.S. So the U.S. actually views that entity as participating, if you will, in those activities. And, and that's just different than the way non-U.S. countries or countries that, that obviously they're not going to respect the U.S. cost share rules. And that really creates this gap. Do, do you agree with that kind of characterization, well, Callum? It certainly, it certainly is a major factor in the analysis. I mean, the reality of the cost sharing rules is they they effectively deem economic ownership of the share of the IP into the cost sharing participant. And so, you know, under US rules and actually economically and legally, the Irish non-resident entity was the economic owner of the IP. Um, and the argument that the Irish authorities went with and Apple went with was that's not in dispute. What is in dispute is whether those intellectual property assets, rights, etc., were allocable to the branch. And in their view, they weren't allocable to the branch because the people who were in Ireland were not overseeing, uh, exploiting that intellectual property that sat outside Ireland. What was being done in Ireland was a much more limited activity. And so, yeah, the contrast between the Irish rules uh, and the US rules, and obviously with a non-resident haven jurisdiction in between, they didn't care, meant that there was, you know, the potential under the rules as written, that the profit that was not allocated to the Irish branch that was allocated to Bermuda would not be taxed in Ireland, would not be taxed in Bermuda, and US rules wouldn't tax it on a current basis, providing it met all the conditions to not be caught by subpart F. You know, what happened with tax reform was, you know, there was a toll charge, there was a catch up tax on all those earnings. So at some element, it probably has now been taxed in the US. Don't know the detail of that. And on a go forward basis, obviously the new international tax system for the US may tax some of that on an arising basis under guilty as well. but. Certainly, at the time the structure was in point, um, the, the the basic idea was there was a, ch a chunk of profit that wasn't taxable in the US because the US rules applied appropriately to say the profit belongs to the CFC, and that profit should not be allocated to the Irish branch, at least under the Irish government and Apple's view of the world. Yeah, and I view it, Callum, as just, you know, these are fundamentally different tax systems, but you went exactly where, where I was heading was that even though under the pre-reform system of U.S. tax, that income wasn't currently subject to U.S. tax related to the IP at that Irish non-resident, ultimately, presumably, and I have no idea what Apple's uh, Section 965 inclusion, what, what, what was involved with that, but presumably that income was subject to tax as a result of tax reform when all that untaxed E&P became immediately subject to U.S. tax, that E&P that was deferred. And, and you're right, under the new system, that guilty is intended to, to tax that that type of income currently. So just wanted to put some of that in context and, and things have changed yeah. with the US with the US system as as well. I mean just to be fair, the commission started their inquiry before tax reform happened. So whatever the current US system is wasn't necessarily relevant to the commission's view. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and they were really focused on how that allocated, how that income should be allocated or dealt with between the, the overall legal entity and those activities that were taking place in Ireland. So I think that's a, a good transition to, you know, talk, talk what about the, the court held, because I, I think that, you know, a lot of people have viewed this as, as, a, as a win for Apple, but I think that there's also something that the EC has, um, could, could, could argue that they've benefited from in this decision. But can we unpack that? Right. So, I mean, the, the, the decision, if you boil it down, um, was uh, split between sort of the legal niceties and the question of facts. Um, and the legal niceties were largely found in the commission's favour, insofar as the general court reaffirmed that a transfer pricing advanced pricing agreement or indeed any other agreement that gives a transfer pricing result could if the facts determined give rise to illegal state aid and therefore be in breach of the state aid rules so the court went out of its way to confirm that the commission had the right to investigate a transfer pricing arrangement and if in that investigation they could show and prove that the transfer pricing applied was not within the construct of the relevant reference framework, which in this case was the overall Irish tax law, then they could prevail that that just that agreement could give rise to a legal state aid. Where the commission then effectively lost the case was that they did not prove that the arm's length agreement that the government and Apple agreed as the appropriate level of remuneration to be allocated to the branch was in breach of arm's length principles and therefore they could not prove that a selective advantage had been given to the taxpayer Apple by the Irish government and so that so what effectively happened was the commission one on the technical points of whether you know state aid could be granted through transfer pricing but effectively lost resoundingly on proving the facts that in the facts as stated the irish government had misapplied transfer pricing rules as as they as they were written into irish law at the time i mean to be clear just so we make sure we make sure the reference framework i mean ireland's law at the time um has been slightly amended but the law at the time and the case law relevant to that law made it clear that a non-resident company carrying on a business activity that rises to the level of a permanent establishment in Ireland, which was, as we said, was a statement of fact in these cases, that that activity is taxable in Ireland only to the extent it's attributable to the permanent establishment. Yeah, what the Irish government took the position was, was that, it, it, it was not the case that the profit that related to the intellectual property was allocable to the Irish branch because the relevant functions, the DEMPI functions as they're now known under transfer pricing, were not located in Ireland. And if the functions were not located in Ireland, then the assets should not be allocated to the branch. And the consequence of that is the income should not be allocated to the branch either. 
Yeah. And, and again, this is just the difficulty that taxing authorities are trying to square just the, the, the different regimes and how the U.S. cost share rules work that effectively allowed, if you will, the return from that IP income to, to sit at that Irish non-resident entity. But the only thing that really could and should have been subject to Irish taxes, the activities that were taking place in Ireland and using the arm's length standard to figure out what what income should be allocated to, to, to those activities, which consequently yeah. resulted in a big chunk of that income not being subject to tax in Ireland. Arguments that transfer pricing uh, nerds are very sort of deep into is, you know, what the methodology was for determining the allocation of the profit. And, you know, broadly speaking, the taxpayer apple and the irish government effectively agreed a methodology that said we've got two parties to this transfer pricing arrangement one is the irish branch the other is the head office and in determining the allocation we're going to take an approach that says we'll look at the risks activities and functions of the Irish branch, that'll be our tested party. And once we've determined what those are, we will then price what the appropriate return on those activities, functions, etc., are. And it's not relevant that the other side to that may not have all the relevant risks and functions itself to, to determine the allocation of profit. It's only relevant what the Irish branch has. And if, if other people elsewhere, not in Ireland, not in the head office, are contributing to that return, then that's fine. We, all we've got to do is focus narrowly on what the activities, risks and functions are of the Irish branch. And that was broadly what the general court found in favor of the Irish government and Apple on, that it was indeed appropriate under transfer pricing methodologies to take the one-sided tested party approach uh, and it did not mean that you had to then say what happens to the rest of the profit you just had to determine whether the one-sided tested party approach had allocated an appropriate remuneration to the branch yeah and, and you mentioned calm and I, I appreciate that this could be like its own separate cross-border tax talks podcast theme uh you mentioned that it was found that ireland had not was not being selective in applying the rules as as you described yeah. and this selectivity i think is the the primary kind of legal issue related to a, a number of these cases can you mm. briefly just for, for our listeners explain what selectivity is and i understand that it is a complex legal issue that uh. is still being formulated and what does this mean for any of the other cases that, because we've had a couple of other cases come out, there's a number of other cases pending. Mm -hmm. what, what, is, what, what should listeners take away from this decision on selectivity and, and some of the impacts that it may have? Well, I mean, selectivity is a fairly broad concept. And, and you know, when it applies to state aid um, on taxing matters, it can really mean two different things. You could have a, an overall regime that is regarded as selective vis-a-vis -vis one group of taxpayers. So for example, um, you know, they took a case against Belgium and the Belgian coordination center regime, and they tried to argue, the commission tried to argue that that regime was giving a selective advantage 
for the companies that could qualify for that regime as against all other companies. Or alternatively, selectivity could look at a taxpayer or a group of taxpayers that are getting a, an agreement, a deal from a government authority that no one else can get. And so what the Commission were trying to argue was on a standalone basis, the Irish government would in theory have taxed everything. But because there were multiple parties involved because it's related party transactions, the Irish government had selectively applied the arm's length transfer pricing rules to end up with a result that less less activity was taxed in Ireland than would have been if you were just a standalone single entity with no related parties. And so that selectivity principle has been, you know, at, at, at the core of all state aid decisions and certainly the tax decisions over the last uh, number of years. And, you know, the Commission has sought to apply selectivity in a very wide manner um, and argue that, you know, merely getting a advantageous transfer pricing uh, agreement could be a selective advantage for that company vis-a-vis -vis other companies. And d does this shed any light, Callum, on kind of what the general court is thinking, and particularly with with some existing cases that 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 are in the pipeline? I mean, is this how does this change the the calculus on 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 some of these these pending cases in front of the court? The general court's decision is informative. I mean, at one level, it didn't differ from a previous decision that was given in the Starbucks case, where the court did indeed find that transfer pricing arrangements, to the extent they gave an advantage, selective advantage, were within the realms of state aid. Um, but what the general court found in Apple and indeed in Starbucks was, yes, the commission has the right to challenge transfer pricing arrangements, but they have a burden of proof to prove that the transfer pricing arrangement that has been agreed upon is giving a selective advantage. And in both cases, the commission had failed to deliver that burden of proof. I mean, there are some other cases pending out there where these principles are core again to those cases, i.e. the commission is arguing that an agreement in relation to pricing of transactions was um, illegal under state aid principles because it gave a selective advantage. And the Commission will no doubt be trying to work through those cases at the moment to work out what arguments they can put in front of the court to prove that, that the burden of proof is that the, the government in question gave a selective advantage, but they failed to do so in, in Apple or Starbucks. So I don't think it will stop the Commission. I mean, in some ways, they, they have been told that what they're doing is appropriate. They just didn't find the right facts. Yeah, so along those lines, Calum, I mean, what is your views on kind of the, the future of state aid as 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 a tool for the, the the commission to use against taxpayers? 
because I think there are a number of things that kind of change the calculus, right? Obviously, a number there's been the anti-tax avoidance one and two, so we've seen, you know, the mm-hmm. the, the member states have have had to update their their laws. Um, for example, as I mentioned, Ireland, you know, is saying that the Irish incorporated will now be subject to tax in Ireland at the end of of 2020, or if I think for for calendar years beginning after January 1st, 2021, if I have my my dates correct. Mm-hmm. And then we've also seen a number of the the member states start to look at digital service taxes or other types of digital taxes. And that may appear to be kind of the, the, the chosen route for particular member states to, to try to grab some of this type of income. But you know, w- what's your view on, on the future of, of both state aid and, and how member states are going to react and how the commission may react uh, to these types of structures in the future? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, you've got to remember these cases started before tax reform, um, some of them before the finalization of BEPS version one papers. Um, and, and clearly, you know, the tax world has rotated a number of times since the decisions were started. Um, and you might think that the commission's original view that, you know, a, a, a taxing r- rule that gave rise to income that was not taxable anywhere was, you know, in their mind, de facto evidence that state aid was being granted. I mean, I, I never thought that was the case. And indeed, a number of the decisions have proven that not to be the case. You know, an arbitrage in taxing results does not automatically lead to state aid. And as you pointed out, you know, Ireland's changed their rules. And the US has changed their rules. Uh, and you might think that the commission may be willing to back off now insofar as, you know, all profits are subject to a guilty regime in, for U.S. multinationals. But the evidence of BEPS 2.0 and the digital services taxes and all those uh, issues is evidence that the, you know, the, the international community has not yet become satisfied that the current international taxing system is applying the appropriate overall burden of tax on multinationals and then more importantly allocating that tax burden appropriately amongst jurisdictions and, and so if you look at the work of the oecd in beps 2.0 that has some you know, two pillars to it one pillar is you know you've got to reallocate the profits appropriately the other is to ensure an appropriate and fair level of tax on all multinationals you know that was started out of the digital the debate and obviously some countries have broken early and applied digital taxes to the digital economy. And, you know, the, whilst there is some hope that those digital tax regimes would be rolled back if the OECD could get, you know, agreement, total agreement on BEPS 2.0, um, I, I, I for one find that, you know, somewhat elusive at the moment if you look at the commentary it's very hard to get the inclusive framework to all agree what the appropriate tax system should be and to agree the mechanism by which that should reallocate the taxes i mean the commission starts from a position of protecting the eu within the eu and making sure there is no barrier to free trade within the eu And I think the Commission still believes that there are countries that are members of the EU that are using their tax systems 
know, broadly or tightly to encourage investment in their jurisdictions at the cost of investment in other EU member states. So I think the Commission will say state aid still has a role to play. Um, equally, they would very much like the EU, because they come from the same camp of, of those within the EU that want harmonisation of the tax rules within the EU, because their view is that if you had harmonised tax rules, there would not be this competition for investment. Uh, but in order to get the harmonisation, the EU has a um, an obstacle there insofar as that taxing matters as a general matter within EU law are the subject of unanimous voting. So any one member state can stop an EU initiative by saying no on taxing. The EU is now you know, looking at other parts of the European Treaty to determine whether they can impose tax rule changes through what is called a qualified majority, which would allow them to get, you know, it's a complicated math formula, but it would allow them to get tax rules changed across the EU without getting the unanimous agreement of all EU member states. And, and I think they will continue to look at that as being the mechanism for to get what they actually want to achieve, which is no competition on tax matters being used to unfairly advantage one member state over another. Well, Callum, I, I think we're going to have to leave it there, but I, I, um, it's going to be very interesting to see how state aid continues to, to develop, how the various member states react to not just the, the, the digital service taxes, and we see some of those get imposed unilaterally, but we know that a number of countries, frankly, maybe all of the countries that have been uh, negatively impacted or their economies have been ne negatively impacted by COVID are going to be looking for revenue. And 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 then using this um, the, this kind of new majority type approach to look at tax systems within the EU itself, or with the that allows the Commission to look at these tax systems, will will certainly all potentially change the calculus with respect to you know how certain jurisdictions are viewed. So it's going to continue to be, yeah. I think, a very very dynamic uh, dynamic area. I mean, the most immediate point I think is we don't know yet whether the Commission will appeal the General Court decision. The They've got 70 days from the date of the judgment to make that decision. Uh, at the time of recording this, I've not seen a decision to appeal. And that's going to be interesting to see whether the Commission are up for the fight of going through an appeal process. Noting that the appeal in theory should be on a point of law, not a point of fact. And given the decision actually found for the Commission on most of the points of law, it might be hard for them to construct an appeal. But I'm sure creative minds are being applied. Well, whether that decision is appealed or there continues to be changes in the EU, which we know there will be, you can find it here on Cross-Border Tax Talks. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. A special thanks to Callum Dewar, PwC's Integrated Global Structuring Leader, for joining me to talk about the Apple decision. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast.